Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to a pair of surveys done by the Bank of Canada, Canadians are worried that inflation is here to stay. How does this impact consumer confidence? Well, we'll talk about that. Russia has declared victory in Luhansk, but Ukraine captured tanks and regains territory elsewhere. Now that Putin has captured Luhansk, what's his plan? And Reggie Cicchini joins us with his weekly Washington report to cover the July 4th holiday and another shooting tragedy in the States. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk a little bit about economics and inflation and the impact that it's having on us. And and specifically, a, a pair of new reports from the Bank of Canada uh, that point to rising inflation expectations by Canadian businesses and consumers. And, uh, well, the essence of this seems to be the concerns that we have right now are not going away anytime soon. So where are we going here? And, and should we be optimistic, pessimistic, or just, uh, you know, hang in there? Uh, Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Now, he joins us on the program uh, to shed some light on these reports. So, Moshe, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, what the Bank of Canada is saying here. Uh, uh, yes, uh, they, the central bank now has said expectations for near-term inflation have increased, and firms expect inflation to be higher for longer than they did in the previous survey. Are, are we settling in for the long haul here? Could be. That's that's the danger of inflation. And I know that uh, when you and I have been talking uh, the, the last few times I've been on, this is exactly the fear that I was worried about, is that when inflation rises, it's not just the short-term consequences, it's that it gets embedded in people's mindsets. And once it's there, it becomes even harder to get out. And so when the Bank of Canada report came out yesterday saying this is what they're seeing, it, it's not surprising that that's what they're seeing. It's just worrying that now people are really starting to expect that inflation could be high just means that the Bank of Canada has to work that much harder. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those tools in just a second, because there's a number of different factors here that you've talked to us about in the past, uh, including yes, inflation, but I mean, that also ties into wages and wage expectations, uh, productivity. I mean, there's a whole long list of things here right now that seem interwoven. And, and maybe we could start off with the wage situation, because the concern that, that some economists will say is, look at you can't start saying, hey, my costs are going up, the price of gas is up, uh, groceries are up. I need a raise uh, because that can be somewhat problematic and they say counterproductive. Mind you, I'm hearing from other people, though, Moshe, that said, no, 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 it's no big deal. We can do this. Uh, what, what, what's your read on this? No, it, it, it is a big deal. If, if you start increasing wage demands, then that's going to show up in one of two ways. Either firms are going to have to pass on that higher cost in the form of higher prices, which itself is going to continue the inflationary trend or it's going to show up in the form of lower profits. And where maybe a lot of people are uh, taking an anti-business bent these days and say that, hey, lower profits isn't the worst thing, uh, shareholders would certainly think it's the worst thing. And uh, given that most of us today, if not our direct shareholders in a lot of companies, we have mutual funds, which makes us indirect shareholders in those companies. Uh, that's the type of thing that starts to harm pension plans. It starts to harm uh, retirees who are living on that type of money. And so it does have consequences either way. Uh, so it's best that those wage demands don't show up in the first place. But the longer inflation persists, the more likely it is that we're going to say, I don't mind a one-off blip where prices go up and I didn't expect it, but there's no way that I'm going to be fooled a second time. Yeah, I, I mean, it, we have to be educated, I guess, about where that's going. I mean, pension funds don't just sit there and do nothing. They're invested. And uh, if the market goes down, if things like that happen, well, we saw that in 08, 09, didn't we? I mean, a number of pension funds were basically just dried right up. 
Yeah, and and you know, pension funds because they're so active, they're they're going to start moving their money around to try and find other opportunities. And so, uh, even if you can somehow maybe protect pensioners or or people who have their money invested in in mutual funds to some extent, uh, the problem is going to be that those companies who find that their profits are being squeezed are going to have a more difficult time gaining access to credit. If they do gain access, it's going to be at higher interest rates because. That's the flip side of the higher inflation, and it just means that being able to operate is going to become more difficult for them, and that could lead to higher bankruptcies, which could lead to layoffs, which could lead to recession. So, you know, there's a lot of negative consequences that come from this. So, the idea that oh, it's no big deal—it's just not at all true. It is a big deal, and it's something that we really need to be vigilant about. But the, you know, when you look at short-term solutions, and 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 that I guess can be somewhat counterproductive, as you say, to the bigger picture. Uh, you know, we've talked in the past, for instance, about labor shortages, and that still exists apparently. Uh, it doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot better. Uh, and what some employers have told us, Moshe, is, look, I've got to give these people more money. That, that's the only way I'm going to get some uh, somebody who wants to come and actually work, especially in some of the service industries right now. So I'm going to have to increase wages. Well, that's that's really making a bad situation worse in, in the long term, isn't it? It is. And so, you know, every worker has the the right and even the expectation that they're going to be compensated for their efforts. And when they find that the, the job no longer is worth the money, then, of course, they're going to ask for more money. There's nothing wrong with that. It's that when everybody takes that individualistic approach, the collective issue is going to be problematic for the economy. But yeah, employees are in that position right now where, you know, we, we I think we talked uh, on a previous appearance that businesses are choosing to, for example, just close Monday and Tuesday in the food and beverage industry, rather than pass along uh, higher wages in the form of higher prices to their customers. But, you, you know, they're reaching a point where, hey, that's maybe a solution for three months, it's maybe even a solution for six months. But at some point, their own customers are going to say, wait a second, we need you to be open on Monday and Tuesday. You can't just close because you don't want to pay workers more. So yeah, they're going to have to pay those higher wages. Uh, and, and that's going to spill over again into other industries as well that have that same sort of labor problem. And that's the thing that sustains inflation at high rates. Well, we've seen this. I was just talking with Alicia, our producer, about this a couple of minutes ago. Uh, like, you know, 24-hour drive throughs you know, t- t- coffee shops, Timmy's, whatever it might be. A lot of them right now are not open at night now, and and I gotta assume that's because they can't find people to work. So you know the option is closed. But if that happens on a regular basis, does that become the new normal? It does until we get that out of our head, and so we're we're returning back to the the bad old days of the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, where we just expected that inflation would be double digits, and so we were regularly asking for double digit wage increases, and that's the type of thing that became really difficult to to get out of our heads when the Bank of Canada became the inflation fighter that they are supposed to be in the early 90s, one of the things that they had to do was try and incrementally convince us that they're going to bring inflation down. It wasn't a cold turkey exercise. It was trying to gain credibility by saying, look, we're going to go from 10% down to 8, now 8 down to 6, 6 down to 3, and we're going to keep it around 2 from now on. Uh, but the economic damage that comes with trying to bring that inflation down is trying to convince people that they mean it. Uh, and that can involve economic loss. It can involve some sort of reduction in, in standard of living in the process. It can even involve a, an extended recession. So, uh, yeah, it, it is exactly the type of thing that that's happening. But it, the, the potential consequences, the longer this lasts, is that it's the longer it takes to correct. 
Where's that threshold, though, Moshe, where we're simply as consumers saying, you know what, I, I'm not buying anything. I'm not getting a new car. Uh, I'm not going to go on a vacation this year. Uh, we just can't do this, uh, which, again, is going to have an impact, negative impact, I would think, on the economy. You want people to spend their money. Uh, but at some point, uh, what little money they have, they're going to start hoarding. Yeah, you know, we, we might be at that point. But the interesting thing, Bill, is that if you take a look at what's called the real interest rate, so it's the interest rate that you're borrowing at after you account for inflation, it's still negative, right? If you're borrowing at, say, 5 or 6% right now, but inflation is 7%, 8%, then the real cost of borrowing is negative too. In a sense, what that means then is that it's almost as if the bank is paying you money to borrow. So easy access to credit then is still out there. And so it just means that interest rates have to rise that much further to make it punitive for you to borrow money, which means that the point where you're going to say, I don't want to borrow anymore, I want to start saving, I want to cut back on my spending is still a ways off. So we got a nice big interest rate coming in the, in the next couple of weeks, but it's still not going to be enough to, to turn that real interest rate into some sort of damaging positive number that makes people back away. And, and I guess the, the big money market question now is what is that number? Uh, and because we're always assured, I, I, you know, for those of us who lived back in the days of the 19% mortgages, that it's never going to get that bad again. And I'm not anticipating or thinking it will. But where is that ceiling? Or do we even know yet? You know, it, it really depends on at what point these interest rate increases that we've been seeing in the first half of the year start to have their full effect. So if we see that, you know, the inflation number starts to come in, even if it's just cresting at 8%, then you know, interest rates don't have to rise much further than they already are. But if we find that next month the inflation rate comes in at 8.5%, then it just means that there's that much more work to do. And that's tying back then to, to the beginning of our chat today that when you have wage increases starting to show up, this creates that wage price inflationary spiral that, that makes it really difficult to control. So it really is a matter of just watching those inflation numbers. And it's a matter of consumers starting to realize that they can try and fix their behavior now and they can do a minimal amount of damage to themselves or they're going to have to fix it later and there's going to be a lot more damage, right? Uh, that That's really the, the way that consumers can influence at what point are we going to see the, the cresting. And, and I guess there are some people who have already taken that initiative upon themselves, aren't they? I mean, we, as you said, we have to pivot and maybe change our spending habits. And we saw the stats, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a lot more people are shopping at the discount grocery stores now than, than some of the larger chains. Uh, prices are slightly lower there, so you can save a few bucks that way. Uh, not drive as much. Uh, you know, driving the speed limit. There's a whole bunch of stuff like that that we never really paid much attention to, which uh, I guess now are, are going to be some of the mores that we're going to have to pretty much adhere to. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's not that we have to completely deprive ourselves either. It's it's incremental adjustments is usually going to be enough to, to do the trick. So like you said, it's not that you don't have to drive anymore and give up the car, it's drive the speed limit. Or if you have the capacity to say drive one way. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been suggesting to people, for example, is walk to the grocery store, uh, but take an Uber back, for example, right? So the the idea that you have to drive both ways, you really don't have to drive both ways, at least if the grocery store is close to begin with, because you're not carrying anything with you when you're going there, right? So th there's ways that we can adjust our behavior that doesn't involve a complete deprivation of anything fun in our lives. And so staycations as opposed to long distance travel and things like that, it will come back. There, there will be a point where we can have our regular life again, but it's at this point, 
we need to get that inflation rate down. The Bank of Canada is going to do it for us, but we, we can help them uh, so that they don't have to do as much damage to us in the process. Is there a role for government here, which which can be problematic in the past? I mean, we've seen government say, wait a second, I can help you here. Uh, and we've seen wage and price controls, uh, not very popular. We've seen a number of different initiatives. Uh, some of them some of them actually pretty effective. I mean, back in you know, when we had the, the fuel shortage, I guess, was back in the uh, the late 1970s. Remember, that's, that's when the United States lowered the speed limit on interstates down to 55. Uh, and that was in place for, for a number of years after that. And I guess that was effective to a point, even though people didn't like it. Uh, but you've mentioned before that, you know, economics is, is ebbs and flows and it's, there is a cycle here. Uh, and if you interrupt that cycle, sometimes you can do more damage than good. Yeah, I mean, the government can help. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on provincial governments to suspend fuel taxes and things like that. I don't know that that really is going to solve the problem. I really don't even know that it's going to make a big dent in the problem. That that could affect the inflation rate by maybe 0.2 or 0.3 percentage points. So it's really not enough. But it kind of goes against uh, the, the government's uh, stand on the, the environment and climate change. Mm -hmm. What the government can do, which is deeply unpopular, but it is the correct thing to do, is spend less. If part of the inflation is being created by excessive spending, the government is part of the economy and they're spending. And so they're probably most able to stop their spending by suspending certain programs. And if the fear is that this is going to hurt low-income Canadians or Canadians that are living on fixed incomes... Uh, then all they can do is redirect their spending. They can say, we're just going to leave our spending at the current level, but we're going to move it from, say, spending on defense to, say, spending it on seniors. So the overall level of spending doesn't change, but at least it's targeting people who are most exposed to high inflation. But really what they should do is, is cut back. It's just politically unpopular when Canadians are expecting help and relief. It's a weird message to them if the government says, we'll help you by not spending. Um, it, it's the economically correct thing to do. It's the politically bad thing to do. Well, and in our political environment right now, uh, you know, for instance, you just to use your example, okay, let's spend less, less on defense. The NATO's, uh, you know, hammering on the door here right now says you have to increase spending on, 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 on uh, especially that particular aspect on, because of what's going on in Ukraine and other challenges that we're facing right now. So that there's no easy way for the government here to, to simply say, okay, we're just going to knock things back a little bit. Uh, and which I guess is one of the reasons why the, these reports seem to indicate that, look, this isn't going to change next week. No, and, and that's exactly it, is that whatever the government decides to do, it's immediately going to be attacked. So in, in a weird way, we, we find ourselves in the problem, too, that the government is almost unable to help because of the political situation they find themselves in. If they had a strong uh, majority government where they could, they could uh, afford a little bit of bad PR, they're far enough out from an election where they could absorb that and say, hey, it's for the good of the economy and you'll appreciate us in, in two, three years when this is passed. But given their weakened position... Whatever it is that they would target would immediately be attacked, especially when they're in bed with a party that's fundamental principle is spend, spend, spend. So any type of cut in spending is probably going to immediately be attacked by their own partners, let alone the people across the aisle from them. Uh, interesting stuff. And always great to get your perspective on this, uh, Moshe. Thank you so much for the time today. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Take care. Moshe Lander, I see your comment, lecture, of course, at Concordia University, trying to give us some perspective on this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we talked about uh, our, our willingness and I guess our resolve uh, to, to put up with a lot of the, the economic problems that we're facing these days. And a lot of it caused, of course, because of what's going on in Ukraine, the, the Russian invasion there. And uh, we certainly talk about the global impact that uh, some of the sanctions are having and the repercussions from those sanctions. 
But what about on the ground? What's going on there with the conflict and with the war itself? Uh, we do know uh, from latest reports that uh, Russian military attacks continue through Ukraine, pretty intense at times, in fact. Charles Desma has some details for us. Ukraine Army spokesman Alexander Stupin says airstrikes continue to hit Ukraine's territories in Chernihiv, Sumai, Kharkiv, across Donetsk, and settlements along the contact line, adding an airstrike from a helicopter has hit a school building in the area of the Esman settlement in the Sumai region. Stupin assesses the main efforts of the Russian army in the Donetsk direction are concentrated on holding occupied territories in Luhansk. I'm Charles Diladesma. So what is the purpose, what is the strategy, and, and how effective is it being uh, carried out in the, in the last little while? Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Oral Brown, who's a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Muck School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. Good morning. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what we're hearing there. Uh, varying messages, sometimes conflicting messages, uh, about Russia's successes, as they call it, recent successes, and Vladimir Putin actually uh, claiming victory uh, in uh, Luhansk. Uh, and, and let's talk a little bit about that and the impact that that's having on the battle. They have enjoyed some successes using mass artillery and uh, total brutality. They have advanced. They have devastated cities entirely. Uh, it is a kind of scorched earth offensive that uh, has a tremendous toll on the Ukrainian population. It also ex extracts uh, uh, significant losses on Russian forces, but Russia is now controlling the Luhansk Oblast, basically, and they want to take over the Donetsk Oblast. You will recall that uh, Vladimir Putin has said that those two regions uh, uh, should be independent, and then they will join Russia. So from the Ukrainian perspective, this is an attempt to detach more territory from Ukraine and then link it to Russia the way Crimea was. Consequently, Ukraine has fought. They tried to resist, but they did not have the heavy weapons. They did not have the equipment that they had requested, certainly not on time, and they had to have a tactical retreat. Having said that, it's also essential to look at the big picture because this is a war, so we cannot just go by certain battles. Uh, battles are, of course, important, and the losses are grievous, but it's almost like taking a snapshot when you have a long video. We have now a war that has gone on for over four months, within the fifth month of that, and uh, it's unimaginable that Vladimir Putin had thought that he would be in this situation uh, at the moment. Yes, the sanctions have not had quite the devastating effect that they had intended, but they are beginning to have some impact. And there have been other developments that we have to add into the mix. Among these, that NATO now has a new strategic concept, that they have designated Russia as a direct and significant enemy. And crucially today, just today, NATO has formally taken the step to bring in Sweden and Finland, two previously neutral states, into the alliance. They signed the protocols of accession. And as Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, said, this is really a historic moment. 
As a matter of fact, it was not too long. I guess the ink wasn't even dry in the agreements uh, that uh, they've announced that there was a NATO uh, base, I guess, that's going to be set up right near the uh, the Russian border uh, in Sweden, uh, which I guess is, I, I don't know if there's a strategic, you know, reality to that, or if it's really just to let Mr. Putin know that, yeah, we're here and, and we're not going anywhere, uh, which begs the question, I guess, Professor, about opening up a second front, not that there's going to be any invasion of, of any Scandinavian countries anytime soon. But, but how does Putin relax, react rather to this militarily with, uh, with these two nations joining NATO? Uh, is there a reinforcement of, of, of Russian forces, which are already there on the border, uh, as a show of strength there too? Or does he just concentrate on Ukraine and forget about that for now? It's a dilemma for Russia because Vladimir Putin used the excuse, and it is an excuse, that he went to war because of NATO enlargement. He used other yeah. uh, excuses as well, but the reality is that he had attacked uh, Ukraine in 2014, had annexed uh, Crimea legally, when Ukraine uh, uh, was not uh, applying, was not interested in getting into NATO, it was the EU. So uh, this is uh, about personal power, ultranationalism, the diversion of popular attention away from the basic failings of the Putin regime to make Russia into a modern state in the fear of democracy. It's not coincidental that you see increasing repression in Russia. But the entry of Sweden and of Finland, and of course, it has to go through actual ratification by the legislatures in each of the states that are members of the alliance. But assuming that that will take place, this is a major strategic shift because it brings into the alliance two very highly capable countries, one with already a highly potent military, and the other one, Sweden, that is in the process of rebuilding a military. Uh, and Sweden has a very capable arms industry. They have had uh, sophisticated training for their forces for, for uh, a very long time. And Russia has a, has a dilemma. They have limited resources. Russia is not the Soviet Union, and they cannot be everywhere at all times. That's something we don't spend much time talking about, about the military structure and the military strength, I guess, of, of these two Scandinavian countries in particular, uh, which, I, as you mentioned, have been building very quietly for some time. Uh, Finland still has uh, mandatory military service, do they not? They do, and they can mobilize very quickly, something like 300,000 troops. Now, the number of forces that Russia used to invade Ukraine has been packed at anywhere between 175 and 195,000. And that is basically what is called the tooth of the armed forces, the rest is tail, logistics and so on. And so in terms of offensive capacity, Russia has limited capacity. This is not the Soviet Union. They cannot throw, you know, 200 divisions uh, uh, and try to run through the Fulda gap and reach the channel. They do not have that, that capacity. The economy can't sustain it. The population uh, won't go for it. Uh, Russia's population is uh, uh, growing old and people have very, having uh, very few children. So uh, it's not uh, the Soviet Union, certainly not the Soviet Union of the Second World War. So Finnish capabilities are significant. Sweden, which has a population of slightly over 10 million, 
has a huge economy. If you look at the, the Swedish economy, even though its population is vastly smaller than that of Russia, in uh, market terms, its economy is easily one-third that of Russia's. And, and what about reliance on, uh, well, for instance, Russian raw materials? I mean, their economies seem to be strong uh, and without uh, that, that sort of assistance. I mean, we see already with Germany and, and Italy and a couple of other countries, of course, over on the other side, uh, are somewhat concerned about uh, Putin turning off the taps when it comes to some of those uh, natural resources. Uh, these two nations seem to be okay without that. They, they don't rely on Russia to any great extent, do they? Not to the same extent as Germany allowed itself to become dependent on Russia. This has been one of the huge problems, of course, uh, where uh, Germany under Angela Merkel, who was a very capable uh, and truly impressive leader, had a kind of blind spot when it came to Russia, that uh, they had become so dependent on Russian energy that Russia could use that uh, leverage. This has not been the case with Finland and uh, with uh, with Sweden, but it is beginning to change, even in Germany. But it, there is another factor I think it's worth pointing out, and that is not only that uh, the sanctions are meant to boycott Russian goods, to stop the export of uh, Russian energy to the West. Uh, they have not been able to stop it to China and to, uh, to India, uh, which are buying Russian oil and gas at very low prices. But Russia is itself very highly dependent on advanced uh, Western technology, chips, uh, extraction equipment for oil and natural gas. And cutting off that tap, the ability of Russia to buy those things, that can have a very deleterious effect on the Russian economy. The problem is that sanctions take a really long time. And they do not do the job by themselves. So consequently, what happens on the ground is extremely important. So the big question here is, can the alliance, NATO, build up the momentum to deal with Russia after having, in many ways, disarmed? And can they maintain that momentum? Uh, they certainly have the capability. It's whether they have the, the will. And Vladimir Putin seems to be hoping that by having these brutal victories in uh, the eastern part of, of Ukraine, uh, that somehow that willingness on the part of the West to continue to stand by Ukraine, to continue the sanctions, that will somehow dissipate. And should that happen, that would certainly work very much in, in Russia's favor. So far, there is no indication that Russia is inducing that kind of reaction in the West. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the military aspect of this. As you say, their reliance on, on Western technology for so many things. Uh, you've talked to us in the past, Professor, about, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the impact that, that this war, which has gone on a lot longer than Putin ever anticipated that it would, uh, is having an impact on, on, on Russian military equipment right now. I mean, the, we saw the story on CBC the other day. I think it was two or three different incidents where uh, Ukraine soldiers were victorious in certain areas, and uh, the Russians left the tanks behind uh, because they, they just got out and, and you know tried to escape. And and they can't afford that sort of thing. I mean, it sounds like it's only three tanks, but as you've told us before, they can't get parts now for maintenance on these things. I mean, there's a there's a, a military cost to to what they're doing here too. That they're uh, they they're never going to admit, I guess, is a problem. But uh, it seems to be something that's ongoing and maybe getting worse. They do have a problem, and when you just looked at the order of battle before the conflict, 
many, including many military experts, thought that uh, this was going to be over in a matter of days, that Ukraine had no chance whatsoever. But among the signs of the weakness of the Russian military is that they are not able to control the airspace over Ukraine. And, and that tells us something about how ineffective the Russian Air Force is in reality compared to how many aircraft, how many fighter planes they supposedly have, because a lot of them are not uh, properly maintained. Uh, they're missing parts and they, they are not uh, combat, combat ready. We see losses in various areas. One very important small loss, but crucial loss was that the Russians had to get out of Snake Island. This is a tiny speck of land closer to uh, uh, Romanian territory than uh, to Crimea, but it kind of controls the access route, naval route to uh, Odessa, and it is essential to not have Russia control that, also for energy exploration, and the Russians had to, had to move out. They are losing small amounts of grand, uh, ground in the Kherson uh, region in the south and in regions in the north. So it is a complex picture where Ukraine has shown capabilities that uh, uh, many did not think they had and uh, where the heavy weapons, the most potent weapons, are just beginning to arrive now. And so uh, it is, again, a question of whether the West will continue and include those, the supplies of those weapons, whether they will continue the training of Ukrainian forces uh, because Ukraine has mo mobilized a, a lot of troops. Uh, Russia is reluctant to mobilize more because Vladimir Putin is trying to create impression in Russia that they're winning, that their losses are limited. Anyone who even talks about Russian losses can go to jail. We now have word that all sorts of individuals, whether it's scientists, uh, this, uh, poor scientists were dragged out of a hospital bed uh, to Moscow and, and died in, in, in custody uh, because he was accused of uh, some nefarious action when he merely, uh, it seems, just opposed the conflict. So um, while Putin has to hide from the population the extent of his losses, in the case of Ukraine, they are able to face those losses, deal with them, uh, prepare uh, more troops, uh, have them trained by the West, and so a great deal, nothing is predetermined, a great deal will depend on the resolve that the West has, and that is being tested. And uh, this is not a conflict just in Ukraine. This really is a conflict between different kinds of visions of the world, different kinds of visions about basic human rights. I only got a couple of minutes left here, but I wanted to ask you about, about repercussions. We started at the beginning of the conversation here. Uh, about the the Russian victory that uh, Mr. Putin uh, is is talking about here in Luhansk, uh, they've they've been that close before. They've been on, in the outskirts of Kiev, as as we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yet the Ukraine soldiers rebounded and were able to to push them back again. Uh, and I guess the key to this whole thing is is uh, you know, as you say, the delivery of all these weapons that NATO has been promising for the last little while. And that lag time seems to be a very big problem for Ukraine forces right now. It has been a huge problem, uh, as has training. Um, it takes time to train uh, forces on any kind of weapon system. And we are now seeing a transition in Ukraine away from uh, Soviet weapons, which they 
Ukraine had inherited from the Soviet Union to Western weapons, to NATO standards, to NATO interoperability. In the long term, this really means that uh, Ukraine is moving entirely into the Western democratic orbit, economically, politically, and militarily, if this can be sustained. And this is why leadership in the West is so important. Resolve is, is, is crucial. Uh, so the statements made by NATO are all the right kind of statements. What is happening on the ground is what the real test will be. Exactly. Professor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Of course, yesterday was 4th of July, and uh, it's a magnificent day for the Americans, of course, as they celebrate their birthday. Uh, And there are parties, there are parades, and sadly, uh, more mass shootings. A 21-year-old is arrested following a deadly attack on a 4th of July parade in a Chicago suburb. Uh, Tim McGuire has some details for us. A gunman perched on the roof of a downtown building in Highland Park, Illinois, opened fire on the crowd below celebrating the city's Independence Day parade. A few hours later, Police Chief Lou Jogman told WFLD about the person of interest. His name is Robert Bobby E. Cremo, C-R-I-M-O III. Later Monday evening, police arrested Cremo. Kate Rappel tells WISN she watched his arrest from her car. He said nothing. He had a very smug look. He, he was seemed to be very calm, cool, and collective, and um, which is just bizarre. Cremo was an aspiring rapper with a stage name Awake the Rapper, posting on social media dozens of videos and songs. In one video, he says, I know what I have to do, adding, everything has led up to this. Nothing can stop me, even myself. I'm Tim McGuire. It puts a a certain black cloud, of course, over the Independence Day festivities. Uh, But there's a lot going on uh, south of the border, uh, not just with the side of Chicago. And to uh, talk about them, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, 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 What should have been a celebratory day, of course, with Independence Day and the 4th of July, and yet the third mass shooting in the last number of weeks. What's what's the response? What's the feeling about, about that news yesterday? Bill, I mean, the third mass shooting in the last couple of weeks, uh, the 12th since Friday, and there have been more than 300 since January 1st, and this has sort of become um, something to be expected in this country. This is a uniquely American crisis that leaders will talk about, that residents will talk about, that victims' families will talk about, uh, that doesn't seem to be able to end. And the um, the reaction this morning, especially on the ground in Illinois, is of uh, is of disgust, is of uh, anger. Uh, the governor of Illinois, um, uh, J.B. Pritzker, saying that he's furious because it doesn't have to be this way, but they don't see any other way that it can be, because even with legislation that's passed to try and prevent these kinds of mass shootings, that legislation didn't go far enough, and there is just a fear now that Highland Park was yesterday, the next American city is still to come. I wanted to ask you about that, because, I mean, I I can't remember which Republican it was. They were talking to somebody with their reaction to this last evening on one of the national newscasts, and basically said, look, we've already done all we can do. As you mentioned, the piece of gun control legislation that they seem to find some bipartisan support for. Uh, But I I guess this really kind of underscores what you've been talking about in your reporting, is that this doesn't go anywhere near far enough to address the problem. It doesn't. Uh, you know, we heard from, from Illinois um, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin say that the, the legislation that was passed that he played a key role in um, 
you know, deals with uh, looking at, uh, at mental health and at crisis counseling and trying to get at these um, suspects or shooters at an earlier age to prevent them from carrying through with any kind of event that may unfold down the road. But critics have said, look, you know, getting at the, the root of the problem, sure, that's one part of this, but mental health is not just a United States issue. There is mental health crises that impact the entire world, and the entire world does not see the kind of gun situations that the United States have. Uh, and that's where critics jumped out to say, look, the issue here is that the, the legislation that was passed does nothing to actually deal with the physical gun itself. It doesn't ban assault rifles. And that is the call that really has been growing around the United States, because, you know, if they want to talk about the root issue of the problem, much of the connection between all of these mass shooting events lies in the fact that it is with an assault rifle that nobody understands why that wasn't a part of the legislation except for the fact Republicans didn't want it in there. Yeah, and I know you covered the Uvalde situation in Texas, of course, uh, extensively uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and again, it was uh, access to that kind of weaponry. Uh, Republicans just don't seem to want to talk about it. No, because they feel that uh, the issue of, of the gun is not, um, is not the issue. They feel that this is more a crisis of mental health, and it's because, again, this all goes back to the money that can flood into the Republican Party from the National Rifle Association uh, and, you know, the, the kind of staunch standing around the Second Amendment and that Americans shouldn't have freedoms taken away when it comes to uh, the type of gun that they want to hold, even though so many leaders around this country are doing everything they can to actively stop assault rifles from getting into the hands of the public, because you'll hear from Democrats and even from some members of the Republican side that an AR-15, you know, it doesn't do anything except kill people in war, uh, you know, and, and they're not used for hunting. They're not used to stop feral pigs in the South, uh, that there is just no need for an American to hold an assault rifle. And the critics will say, until this is put into some kind of legislation, like the assault rifle ban that existed for 10 years back in the 90s, this stuff is only going to continue at an unfortunate and growing and increasing rate. Well, and a lot of, as you've been reporting, a lot of it has to do, of course, with the with the Senate and, and the Republicans in the Senate, and specifically uh, the NRA, uh, Mitch McConnell, who's a, a, a huge beneficiary of that. Now, he supported the bill, which I guess surprised an awful lot of people, but uh, th there seems to be, from what I'm hearing in Washington, that he did it for political reasons, not because of any sense of humanitarian uh, relief for the, the, the people that have suffered and died in this. Uh, he's basically trying to take gun control off the off the radar when it comes to midterm elections, I would think. Well, I mean, look, gun control for any of the of leading Republicans is always going to be um, a tough subject to deal with because so much of the American base in the Republican side, at least, uh, doesn't want to see uh, gun restrictions uh, become, you know, a, a part of of daily conversation. So this this is a move for Mitch McConnell to say, look, we passed meaningful gun legislation that deals with, you know, the back end issue of this, the mental health crisis part of this. But he's not likely going to move forward and touch um, the issue surrounding actual physical uh, guns themselves. A, yes, he does get money from uh, the NRA. His campaign gets money from it. But also, he understands that he may not have the support from within his own party because the Republican Party itself is so fractured, uh, you know, not just on gun issues, but on, on a plethora of different issues that, you know, he, he can use gun violence as a, rather um, uh, gun legislation as a way to kind of draw in a certain part of the Republican base, like the suburban uh, voters who are starting to move away and say, look, we're actively trying to deal with this. Don't go too far away. But again, because it's such a split party, um, the messaging doesn't always get out there. 
Well, especially because as you reported uh, on the Supreme Court decision, the Roe versus Wade decision, which I, I know is not political, but it is, as, as you know, as, as you've talked about, those suburban voters were key uh, in, in, in Biden's winning office a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and I guess the Republicans are very concerned about trying to win them back. And, and they want to, I guess, diffuse uh, some of these contentious issues. Uh, I would think at this stage, Reggie, you know, McConnell's thrust here is to make Joe Biden uh the focus of the midterm elections, his performance in the White House, as opposed to Roe versus Wade and, and the impact that's going to have. And, and of course, certainly the, the gun issue and the violence that's resulted from that. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. You know, th- this is an opportunity for uh, Republicans, for leading Republicans, whether you're Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy, to make Joe, uh, the, the, these midterm elections a referendum on Joe Biden to say, look at all of the issues that are plaguing this country right now under Democratic leadership. This is why things need to change. But it is going to be um, an uphill battle and for a couple of reasons. But the suburbs are a huge part of this right now. Uh, suburbs across the United States oftentimes used to vote Republican, but there's become a split in the suburbs now. The kind of staunchly conservative um, suburbs around the U.S. will still vote Republican, but the suburbs around the big cities, big cities that oftentimes gear more towards the Democrats, uh, they flipped when Donald Trump was the candidate. They flipped during the Trump presidency, and many of the suburbs went towards the, uh, towards the Democrats, and now there is a kind of stress amongst the Republican Party. How do we get suburban voters who are now the swing voters around the U.S., how do we get them back to our party? And it's problematic because, as we're talking about with gun legislation, that's something that impacts suburban voters. They want to see gun legislation dealt with. Mitch McConnell understands that. His party doesn't understand that. They are still pushing back on, uh, on gun rights legislation. And because of that, it could turn off these kind of big city suburban voters and keep them with the Democratic Party. It's the similar situation that we saw with Roe v. Wade. This is an issue that, um, that is, is largely kind of looked at by the suburban population as something that's important to them. And we even heard the former president, Donald Trump, express concern that that might have been a decision that could push suburban voters away. So this is a it's a it's a part of the base that that Republicans really need to kind of lock onto to say, look, if we want to win power back, we need suburban voters. It's going to be an uphill climb, though, to see if they can actually get them, given there are issues around the United States. Sure, everybody's impacted by them, but there are direct ones that Republican voters may say, you know what, we're not on side with you on this one. Well, let me ask you about that fracture, because, you know, we're talking about Republicans versus Democrats in the midterms in November. Uh, but it's also, as you mentioned, Republicans versus Republicans. Uh, a lot of people kept thinking, well, you know, after the, the testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson at the, in the January 6th committee uh, last week, that that's another black mark against Trump. There could be charges laid as a result of this. And, and maybe Trump's influence within the party is starting to wane a little bit. But on the other hand, you hear these rallies that he's at and the way he's going after McConnell right now. Uh, it seems to me, Reggie, as if he's still going to be a force. And, and matter of fact, he was musing the other day, as you be reporting from Washington, that he's going to officially announce his candidacy again. Well, and, and, you know, there's strategy behind that. Try to be the first in the boat so that as other people come in, you can try to push them overboard. Because, look, this is a Republican uh, kind of conference right now that is saying, well, you know, it could be the former president who is going to be on the ticket. He's still technically running the show at the top of the party. There are other Republicans looking around, though, saying, is there a new person that we can put there with all eyes going south towards Florida today? Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, could be the person to take 
the, the helm of the Republican Party. But if Donald Trump can get in there, number one, he can push that kind of camaraderie that he had with DeSantis aside and start to attack DeSantis for any number of reasons to try and keep Republicans on his side. Uh, but, you know, for the Republican Party itself, it is split. It doesn't know which way it wants to go. It understands that Trump can still be kingmaker. It understands that Trump still has a significant amount of influence over the base. But when you look further beyond that, when you look to the actual base, when you look to midterms that have taken place around this country, some of the Trump can- uh, 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 some of the, the candidates running that have Trump's backing aren't doing so well or simply aren't winning. So it's becoming a matter of, well, do we kind of assume that Trump is doing okay 50% of the time, so we still want him there, or do we push aside? This is a Republican Party trying to figure out who it is ahead of this midterm and then really trying to understand what it is ahead of 2024. Is, is the... The hearings, you know, the January 6th hearings with uh, that are going on in Washington right now, are, are they having any impact at all on the Republicans' mindset like that? You know, Liz Cheney was suggesting the other day that uh, that there could be multiple criminal referrals, uh, including Donald Trump. And we have to remind ourselves, as you've reported right from the get-go, uh, this committee can't lay charges. They simply make a recommendation to the Attorney General, Merritt Garland, and, and we don't know where that's going to go. But that could be right smack dab in the middle of those midterm elections. Absolutely, it could. And I think it's a remarkable comment to be made by Liz Cheney in that, you know, it was only a couple of weeks ago where the committee was saying, well, we don't think we're going to make a criminal referral. We're going to leave this in the hands of the Department of Justice as they carry out these secondary investigations, and they will be the ones to ultimately move forward. But as this new testimony comes forward, which we have to remember, Bill, all of the people testifying are from within the Republican circle. They are from within uh, a Republican administration, a la the former Trump administration. These are not jilted and angry Democrats out there. These are concerned Republicans. Uh, and I think that that is starting to resonate somewhat across the U.S. We all looked at the beginning of these hearings and thought, well, you know what, if you haven't changed your mind or you haven't made your mind up already, it's probably not going to make a difference. As these hearings continue, as new hearings come up, and as and new evidence is uh, kind of played to the public that's not just being viewed on Twitter videos or on social media videos, uh, it is having an impact. And to hear from Republicans now say, look, there are members of the administration, possibly members of Congress, possibly the former president, that could have committed criminal behavior here, this is likely going to play into 2022 because these are issues. Trump's big lie is an issue that resonates with suburban voters once again. So this can become problematic for, uh, for uh, control over the Senate and the House. I was looking at the latest forecasts earlier today, uh, and the numbers are moving towards the Democrats for keeping the, House, uh, keeping the Senate. And it is now within a possibility that Democrats could keep the House later this year. That's stuff that wasn't likely just a couple of months ago. It's amazing how it swings like this, uh, which is why it's so important to have these discussions. I'm glad you could do this. Quick fan, though, with that in mind, if, if, if this does start to stick to Trump, uh, do they look at Ron DeSantis as basically Trump light? I mean, he, he, he was a big supporter of Trump, and, and, but DeSantis is going to have to attack Trump at some point if he's going to make a run at this thing. Uh, but do they look at him as an alternative that's still going to adhere to the, the basic principles that Trump has, but maybe not as contentious a man yet? I think it's going to be a challenge for the Republican Party to do that if they decide to move away from Donald Trump because uh, Trump still has that, you know, that, that loud voice at the very top of the party mm-hmm. right now that can try to influence some of the base. And if the base starts to get angry at the fact that the Republican Party may be moving on from Donald Trump, this is going to cause uh, a bit of a crisis internally as to how they do this. Now, if the party ultimately decides, look, Ron DeSantis is the way we want to move this party forward, there is less kind of um, you know, past and baggage along with him, despite 
despite the fact that he has, you know, been the center of a number of controversies over the last couple of years, Republicans are going to have to gather together uh, and try to get the numbers within their party to say, look, this is where we are going to go. But at the end of the day, when you finally have this down to a couple, and maybe it's Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis on a stage battling it out, uh, you know, the past friendship is going to dissolve at that moment, and it's going to be an opportunity for one to bash the other. But ultimately, you know, when one of them is, is, is chosen as, as leader of the party, if it's one of those two, are we going to see Donald Trump fall in line and say, sure, this is the way the Republican Party needs to go? Or does he form a permanent split in the party, which makes it difficult for them to do anything? These are things to kind of watch as the months go by. Contentious times. Uh, we'll be watching for your reporting, of course, on Global National on uh, 630, of course. Uh, Reggie, have a great week. Thanks so much for this, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, Global's guy in Washington with all the uh, the political and, of course, uh, you know, the gun violence and everything else and the political chicanery to, to get Reggie on the program and uh, get an update on what's going on. And more importantly, get a read on what people are talking about in the, the hallways down in the Beltway there in the Capitol building to see uh, just way, which way they're going to be going. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.